favorite authors, friends, and guests explore the simpler side of life. Here's your host, Amish fiction author, Tracy Fertikowski. Welcome to another episode of Buggy Talk. I'm your host, Tracy Fredikowski. Each week, I'll bring you the story behind the stories along with the storytellers. For this week's episode, we have USA Today bestselling author Lori Lowe, who will introduce us to her newest release, Christmas at the Amish Bake Shop. Hello, Lori. How are you today? I'm wonderful. How are you doing? I am great. I love this time of the year when I get to talk about Christmas stories. Um, I don't know about you, but this is the one time that I allow myself extra time to just curl up with a good book. And Amish Christmas stories are the best way to get into the Christmas mood. Don't you agree? Oh, I do. Absolutely agree. And I know that we have lots of things to talk about. I want to ask you a few things about your writing career. But the main thing is we're going to talk about Christmas at the Amish Bake Shop that you co-authored with Shelley Shepard Gray and Rachel J. Good. And what a combination of authors to have your name um, linked with. Um, oh, definitely. I'm honored and blessed to be connected to either and both of them. I have on a couple of occasions um, interviewed Rachel, and she has just such a calming and sweet spirit. And I've met yeah. her once in person, too. So I, I really enjoy um, talking with her. Now, I have not had a chance to get Shelley Shepard Gray on here, but um, hopefully one day I can convince her to come on board. That would be great. That would be. Okay, let me take just for a few seconds or a few minutes, actually. We want to talk about your writing career a little bit in case we have any listeners that haven't already picked up one of your books. Let's tell them a little bit about your career. And let's start with how many books have you written and which one do you think is your favorite? Well, uh, so far, there. this book is a 133 on oh, the shelves. There's another one coming out soon. And there's a whole bunch more rough and unedited and unsubmitted sitting in drawers and on shelves hidden from the public for, for their own protection. <laughs> I'm sure they're but, better than what you think. And I think we all would want you to pull those out of the drawer. No, well, I would have to completely rewrite them because I've looked at them over the years thinking, well, maybe I could stick this in a little place and that, and they would need tons of work because it was my first attempt at writing each one of those were and boy talk about talk I used to use them when I taught writing classes at the college level I used to use them as examples of what not to do kind of like that Lucy episode where she wrote a book and they published it and used all of her terrible horrible writing as how not to write a book (laughs) that's what I do with my old ones but anyway, of, of the ones that are out there, my favorites, I would have to say 50 hours tops the list because it's it's the story of a woman's struggle with brain cancer. And it's a very personal story because of my own cancer journey. And I was writing it. I'd actually started it before I got diagnosed. And then after the diagnosis, I just had to step away from the story for a little while just to get a grip on what was going on with me. But then I picked it up again while I was doing chemo and all that other fun stuff. And I think probably that's what makes it the story that it is because it touches so many people who either have had cancer and survived it or who have a family member or a friend or someone in the going through the process. And it's a, 
it ends on a very hopeful note. So anyway, that's 50 hours. My other, one of my other favorites is saving Alyssa. That's, uh, it's features a, let's see, how do I describe this? A man, his wife is murdered because of his involvement with some criminal elements. And after he turns state evidence, he has to go into the witness protection program with his little tiny girl. So his whole life is upside down and he's living completely differently than he had before. And everything he does now is to protect Alyssa. And then um, that's based on a true story, by the way. Uh, a friend of mine, her brother, this was his story, which I heard <laughs> she wasn't supposed to tell anybody he was in oh. witness protection, <laughs> but she trusted me. So what did I do? I turned it into a novel, but I didn't mention any. I changed all the salient details. Everything that could link back to him is different. And, and I won't even say what gender his child was. And anyway, another true story that uh, inspired a book was Bringing Rosie Home. Um, another friend of mine, uh, her she was chaperoning a preschool field trip, took her eyes off her little girl for a minute, and her little girl was kidnapped. And about five years went by before the little girl was spotted at a mall and ended up back home. And the story is mostly about the struggle between her, her and her husband and trying to bring this child back into, you know, a healthy, happy home when they were, the husband blamed the wife and the wife blamed the husband and it was just bad, 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 but they never divorced. So that's bringing Rosie home. And I guess the, the last on my favorites list is a man of honor, which is the third in my first responder series. It, the whole series was just a whole lot of research and interviews. I talked with about a little bit more than 200 people who were there on 9-11. Um, not only policemen and firefighters and Port Authority people, but also just, you know, ER doctors and all kinds of people who were directly involved with that tragedy. <clears throat> and, um, Every one of the books is about the one of the characters, one of the people I talked to, fictionalized in so that we can hear their story 10 years later, because this series came out at the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And, you know, it's how they cope with the physical and mental and emotional after effects of having been there on site. So those are my favorites. Wow, what a di what a diverse set of books! Oh my goodness, how do you keep you, you're changing from one genre to to another? Yeah, in a blink of an eye. I just admire that, Lori. Oh, that that is quite a talent. That's quite a talent. Keeps me from being bored, and it right. keeps the readers readers don't get bored either because they're what is what is Lori up to now? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> So out of all of these 130 some books that you've written, what's the most surprising thing you discovered while writing a particular book? Well, I'll take all of you back to your high school and college days when you were required to research things for essays and other projects. And I don't think anybody would say, oh, 
I love research. Well, very few. I didn't like research back then. But when I started researching things for the books, like the settings and the time periods and characters' careers or the town that they live in or did live in or whatever, all the pertinent details needed to be researched a lot. And it took, usually takes about good 40 hours of research before I even start a book, just to make sure I have all the, and then your research as you go along, you come across something, two people talking in the book and something comes up and you say, well, I guess I better look that up before I have them say this or that. So I found out, surprisingly, I love research. I love the one-on-one interviews that are required. Sometimes I get to do them in person, sometimes by email or text message or whatever. But the interviews are fascinating because I get to meet all these incredible people. And the research led me in one of the books to get to be a passenger in an F-17 fighter jet. Oh, my goodness. Which I don't even like to stand on a chair to hang curtains. So there I was a million miles in the sky, and the pilot thought it was huge fun to send me on loops and dive bombing and all that junk. And I got off of that. My legs were rubber bands. But how many people get to say they flew in an F-17? So the research has been, I loved it. I still love it. I'll always love it. So, yeah, I guess that's the most surprising thing that I've discovered about writing is I like to research stuff. Wow. I love to go visit places, you know, that that I'm going to write about. You know, I just I just the book that I that launches in November, some of the storyline takes pack takes place in Pinecraft. So I was so fortunate to be able to go and um, interview a bishop and just talk to people and see what the environment is. So I completely agree that research and being able to immerse yourself in the community or a community similar to what you're writing about is priceless. It it makes the story real. It makes the story real. It does. It does. It lends a legitimacy and authenticity that no amount of fictional talent can can bring to a story. Exactly, exactly. So tell us, who is your all-time favorite character? Well, I'll tell you if you promise not to tell Larry. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite character was Dusty Parker, who was the hero in A Man of Honor, the third book in in the First Responder series. He was such a heroic, wonderful guy that I developed a big crush on him while writing that story. <laughs> I would have dreams about oh, Dusty. Oh, you know, we have dinner and we'd sit on the couch and watch movies and eat popcorn. And it was dreams. And I felt guilty waking up because poor Larry, but he didn't mind because I, I always tell him, and this is true that I base all the heroes on his character. He's a very uh, devout and steadfast guy. And he's, very devoted to family and friends and and me. So I guess he doesn't really mind since he's fictional, but still. So there's my little confession mixed in with who's my favorite character. Yeah. Well, it's, it's okay. At this age in our life, a little uh, sweet little crush <laughs> just keeps our heart beating a little faster. Yeah, as long as it doesn't be too fast. Exactly, exactly, exactly. (laughs) So I think you told us already about the inspiration that you get when you do your research. So I'm going to skip to what was the most enjoyable book to write? Well, I know this this is a cop-out because I can't choose one. 
it's kind of like who's your favorite kid or who's your favorite grandchild. <laughs> you can't really you, you sort of might have one that's closer to your heart, but you can't admit it. So I guess what I would say, honest answer to that is every book I'm working on at the moment is my favorite book because I'm immersed in the story. I'm whatever, if it's a contemporary or historical, I'm immersed in the time period. I'm immersed in the city of the people, you know, so I love that element of it is that it's an escape for me too, while I'm working on it. And then sort of connected to that is the after the book comes out and I get letters from readers pointing out things in each story that they really liked. Uh, I can't tell you how many letters I get from readers who say, that's just like my life. It's like you wrote about me and stuff. And they share bits and pieces of their own true life story. And some have asked me to base books on their lives. And I'm kind of scared to do it because I don't know what the legal ramifications would be if the wrong people picked up that book. And, you know, so I have never done that. But I I really appreciate that they got so much out of the book that they drew a direct parallel to their own lives and their experiences. So that's that's always been a pleasant surprise. It is. Anytime you get a a letter or a note or an email or a text message or something from one of your readers, and it's something that changed their lives or it touched them, it makes it all, all those hundreds of hours we spend writing a book, it makes it so worth it. So, so worth it. Oh, it does. Absolutely does. So you have been writing for a, 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 a good bit of time now. <laughs> and, almost 30, almost 30 years. Fiction. Almost 30 Before years. that, it was nonfiction. Yeah. So I've been writing many, many decades. I'm very old, very, very old, Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not that much older than really. me. So you're not that much older than me. So no. tell us, tell us the very, can you remember the very first book you published and, oh, yeah. what, that, and what that journey was like? Well, I had been writing nonfiction for many, many years and accumulated a whole bunch of articles in my clipbook. And for those who don't know what a clipbook is, it's photocopies of your articles that have been published. So you can keep them all in one place and say, see, this is what I accomplished. It's a, it's a three ring binder, basically, instead of photographs in there, it's your public, you know, your pieces of your articles. And uh, so I had a pretty substantial clipbook, like 2,500 articles. And then the county I lived in at the time, which was Howard County, Maryland, but don't tell anybody because it's a big secret. Uh, the county hired me to write a series of articles on, of all things, solid waste management. So I went with the chief engineer of the county to various nearby borderline border states, Maryland you know, states that bordered Maryland. And we investigated, and he, with his scientific and engineering degrees, decided the most efficient and economical and environmentally friendly type of solid waste management would be incineration, for obvious reasons. And uh, I wrote the articles based on that, and the first one came out. It was an eight-week series. The first one came out, and he called me and said, Lori, because I would I had run the scientific terms and engineering terms passed him because I'm not an expert in either field. I want to make sure I called things by their proper names and spelled them correctly. And uh, he gave his approval. So out went the articles and he called me the first one up here. And he said, Lori, we talked about this. This is nothing 
like what we talked about. And here's the reason. The uh, county executive at the time and his council had already decided that they were going to build or um, I don't know whether to call it build, construct a landfill. And they'd already started work on it. So they wanted these articles to make it look like that was the best way to go because it was coming up for a vote. So they changed all the details to reflect their attitudes. <laughs> so I said, that's all well and good. I called the guy who gave me the assignment and said, hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do, I guess. But take my name off of it because I don't want to be affiliated with propaganda. That is untrue. So the articles came out and the landfill was finished. And that's where people still take their junk to the dump over there, even though incineration would have been better. Anyway, I was whining about this one night over supper, how much work went into those pieces and how hard I worked. I mean, it was my reputation on the line. And Larry said, well, if you're going to write fiction, why don't you just try a novel? (laughs) So guess who did? You did. Uh, and that book was Pocketful of Love, which Barbara produced in their Heart Song Presents series. And it was released in August of 1994. I'll never forget because it arrived on my anniversary, which at the time was, gee, 1994. I'd have to do the math, but it was in the 20s, years of marriage. And so the book came out and it got really, really great reviews. In fact, that year it won I don't know if you remember how on the back of every Heart Song Presents, you could fill out a little form and send it back to the company. And depending on how well the scores were, how many people filled those things out and sent them back, you got chosen. That's how they picked their best book of the year. And that got best contemporary of the year that year. Wow. Wow. So guess who thought she could do it again? And and again and again and again. But but I got rejected several times. So I didn't send them to Barbara. So I thought, well, I can I can make more money if I go to heartwarming or I mean to Harlequin or Silhouette or whatever and didn't work. So I worked on my craft a little bit more, even though that one was well received. I went back to classes and studied some more how to books and ended up sending them uh completely unrelated I historicals and all kinds of other stuff and and thank Thank goodness for Barbara, because without them, they were the foundation of my whole career because they believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. After those rejections, I was kind of like, well, you just had a lucky fluke there and you're not supposed to be writing. Go back to go back to writing fiction, uh, nonfiction. But anyway, that's how it started. And I ended up, you know, in addition to all those stories about the Cuban Little League team playing the U.S. Little League game in D.C. and Tilt Up Construction and all that stuff published all over the, literally all over the world in different publications. Uh, you know, I had a nice, one, one good thing came out of it in addition to some, you know, halfway decent money and, uh, and a full clip book was I can go to a party and there's never a, you know, a dull part of the conversation because I can always talk about. Did you know about tilt-up construction? <laughs> you know, people are thinking, what is tilt-up construction? Or, or I talk about a band that they may not have heard of that I had interviewed and did an article on. So, yeah, that's how I got started with with my first book. So I know we all have articles in our past that always come 
into our memory. When I first started my writing career, the very first job that I started was a accounting how-to manual. Oh, how how boring is that? (laughs) Writing a how-to manual for an accounting software. So, Well, if you're an accountant, I imagine it was pretty interesting. (laughs) It was, and I wasn't. That's just it. I wasn't an accountant, but I worked for a company who created a software package, and I was the only one that really knew the software package inside and out. So um, I got hired by another firm to write the how-to manual. So, Oh, that's fantastic. It's crazy. The the thing is, though, it was a computer program, and I write Amish fiction, so I can never bring that. <laughs> I, don't th- I can't think of a way I would bring that computer programming knowledge into an Amish fiction. But anyway, anyway. So I would love to talk about Christmas at the Amish Bake Shop. And before mm-hmm. I ask you some questions, I'm going to go ahead and read the back matter just to set the stage a little bit, okay? Okay, okay. All right. Christmas at the Amish Bake Shop. USA Today best-selling authors Shelley Shepard Gray, Rachel J. Good, and Lori Lowe celebrate the spirit of the season, the warmth of simple traditions, and of course, the joy of holiday treats with this faith-affirming collection of three connected holiday novellas about the Christmas surprises in store for those who work and shop at the charming Amish Bakery. Well, that is a perfect story for the holidays. What was the inspiration for your specific story, and does your specific story in this collection have a title? It does. It's called The Christmas Cupcake, <laughs> which is really perfectly, you know, it sits perfectly well on a shelf at, at the bake shop, So, uh, which I believe Rebecca's Porch. That's the name of the, of the bake shop. Anyway, The Christmas Cupcake, I needed a way for the hero to get... Uh, message to the heroine. Asher is the hero and cannot read. And he's a very successful contractor. So, and he's been keeping this a secret, but he's also got another secret, which is bigger and darker than I can't read. And Tessa is uh, a teacher. And she's noticing things the first time they meet. Well, not the first time they meet, but they meet in the bake shop. And uh, she notices the way he's not reading the menu board and the way he's not looking at the invoice that came in you know, the, the sales ticket that came with what he had ordered with his brother. And she sees the similarity between him and her father, who also cannot read. She finds a way to offer him that she would, she'll help him learn to read. And he takes her up on it and he, he's very, pleased that she's doing this all on the, on the lowdown because he doesn't want anybody to know he can't read because what, what would his customers think? Is he adding up our total correctly if he can't even read? You know, that kind of stuff. But this other secret that he's keeping is way bigger and more life-changing than not being able to read. So as they get to know each other, she begins to feel extremely guilty because she was there and witnessed the event that he's so embarrassed about that he's keeping secret and she wants to tell him, but she's worried he would be angry with her because she kept it secret all these years. And he could, if she just could tell him, then he wouldn't have suffered all alone all these years. So she's, she's got to make a decision, tell him what she knows and risk that 
he don't want he won't want to be her friend anymore or, and and maybe a little deeper than friendship or you know because she knows that to tell him what she knows will give him some freedom from this awful secret so that's the story and he needs at the end of the story he uses a cupcake to show his gratitude and uh, he rolls he writes a little note that taught him she taught him how to write he wrote, writes a note on a little scroll and sticks it into the icing and delivers it to her classroom while she's teaching. So that's why it's the Christmas cupcake. <laughs> oh, well, you did a great job of, of just telling us a little bit about the story. And I had a whole list of questions for you, but I'm not going to ask you any of them because you told <laughs> us everything that I would have already asked you. So I think oh, I, cool. would, I would just really like you to read us your first page or a pivotal part in the story somewhere that you think would be our listeners would entice them to, to purchase your book. Well, the first page, I happen to have it in front of me, so okay. I'll go ahead Perfect. and read that. Perfect. It doesn't, it sort of, kind of sort of sets the stage, but um, Asher is not in this first scene. The cool November breeze riffled Bolt's silky black mane, and Noah figure combed it back in place. Why does he have to wear these dumb blinders? Tessa set the brake then joined her brother on the sidewalk, because without them, every bit of trash scurrying around on the road would startle him. Yeah, he said, stroking Clydesdale's forehead, and cars speeding past, but still, they looked so uncomfortable. For as long as she could remember, Noah had been more concerned with the feelings of others, even horses, than his own. The trait was proof that he had not inherited their father's meanness, and she thanked God for that every day. You know what else I don't understand? She grabbed her purse thinking, no, but I'm sure you'll tell me. Why do we all come, why do we come all the way to Lancaster to buy cupcakes for your students when there's a perfectly good bakery at home? Because here at Rebecca's Porch, where my order is large or small, I get the same friendly treatment. One hand on the brass doorknob, she said, will you come in with me? No, I would rather keep both company. He will appreciate that. How about some coffee for the ride home? Maybe a muffin to share with him. Noah pressed his cheek to the horses. Hear that big fella? Tess is going to bring us a treat. The horse nickered and nuzzled Noah's neck. She understood that her, her, she understood her brother's need to stand guard. It happened with less frequently lately, but terrifying memories kept them on alert. The young Ingles sometimes seemed fond of spooking horses and standing back and laughing as terrified animals tore through the streets, destroying Amish buggies and flattening everything in their path. Some years back, Noah had watched helplessly as two horses were shot dead for upending tables and chairs in a cafe and nearly trampling a few diners as well. The horrible scene woke him on too many nights, even now. Lord, watch over him and bolt, she prayed and stepped inside where she was greeted by the taste bus teasing sense of fresh coffee and hot from the oven bread. Okay, that's the end of page one. <laughs> that was wonderful. You can smell that. <laughs> you described it perfectly. Perfectly. <laughs> so tell us what's next for Lori Lowe. Book one of my shadow series is already out there. It's called Beyond the Shadows. And I'm just about to turn in the shadow of Shadows of His Mind, which is book two in a five-book series. And I'm also working simultaneously on the Sundown Diner series. Uh, book one is called The Preacher Wore Black Leather. <laughs> and it's, uh, this series, that series is set in a, a little Texas town off the interstate. It's kind of like a 
Happy Days Diner meets Mel's Diner meets, I don't know, but they're all the characters will repeat themselves in all the stories. The secondary characters, anyway. So. You are busy. You are busy, busy, busy. Yeah. Well, it's either that or get on Amazon and spend money I don't have. So. (laughs) There you go. go. So tell me what, what's on your reading table right now? What are you reading? I am rereading Atlas Shrugged and To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't know why, but I am. (laughs) I always have a pile that I'm reading. Always, always. It's what keeps me creative. And I think as an author, you have to read. You just have to read. You do. You really do. So tell us what books or authors have most influenced your own writing? Well, when I was in high school, I was assigned a story written by Jack London. It was called The Fire. And I fell in love with his, the way he wrote. And I went and found all of his books. And I, I now own a big, huge, heavy, fat collection of Jack London stories. And I, I don't think I've missed one. He's just got a one of a kind method of describing everything from characters to settings to storylines and dialogue. It's just, he's just such a master. And he didn't, this is not what he studied to become. And he did so many weird things in his lifetime, gold mining and all the goofy stuff that he did and wrote about. It just made me, I fell in love with his stuff. And I, I still, I can go and read his stories now and feel like it's the first time I picked up his stories. I just wow. think he's wonderful. That is wonderful. That's wonderful. So tell us, do you have a favorite quote that you could share with us? Um, I don't know if this is a quote as much as, as it is a, a motto. It is good enough, never is. It's what I tell myself every time I get near the end of any project, whether it's peeling potatoes or, you know, cleaning a sink or whatever. I, you're tempted always to say, ah, that's good enough. And then I tell myself, nope, good enough never is. And I finish the job and do it to the best of my abilities. Well, that is so, what I've never heard that quote before. And I wrote it down while you were, while you were telling us <laughs> that. That's wonderful. So tell our listeners one thing that most of us wouldn't know about you. I'm a sugarholic. <laughs> if it's sweet, I'll eat it. I don't care if it's good for me or not. I will eat it. And then I'll pay penance later. You know, I'll get a headache because too much sugar is not good for your chocolate or whatever. But yeah, I, I love sweets. My, my, uh, I don't know what to call it. My downfall, buttercream icing. I always make a little more than I need so I can clean the bowl. <laughs> are you, are you the type of person that always has a half a tub of that Pillsbury frosting in the back of your refrigerator? <laughs> No, because I don't like it. After you make your own buttercream, that stuff just is like, nah, you can tell when you eat it on somebody else's cake. You can just tell. So I make my own. That's, I do, I do box mixes, cake mixes, and, and I doctor them up a little bit, you know, adding an egg, adding some oil, whatever, butter instead of oil, whatever the secret might be. But I definitely make my own frosting and it's always buttercream. I just love it with buttercream and you can't decorate with the stuff in the can. Nope, you can't. But isn't that a question fitting? And your 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 answer was fitting to um, Christmas at the Amish Bake Shop. <laughs> that was perfect. You know, you're right. It, it ties in perfectly. It does, it does. <laughs> well, do you have anything you would like to say to your readers before we call it a wrap? 
only that I appreciate you so much for inviting me and sharing buggy talk with me. I, I, I'm just honored to be here. And, uh, anybody has questions, uh, shoot me an email or send me some a message on Facebook or whatever. Cause I make it a point to answer every letter I've received. And you know that the number of letters I've received over the years, and I've been in this, the fiction business for 27 years, I think August was 27 years. So, I, I, I think my last count of number of letters received is up in the like 60,000s and I've answered every single one of them in person. Oh, well, that is sweet. I know that I spend a good bit of my time answering emails and Facebook questions and all of that. So it's so important. I'm sure you feel as I do. Our readers are valuable to us and I I love to hear from them. We lit, we work in a profession where we are isolated (laughs) from people a a, a good bit. So those emails and those letters and Facebook messages, they just are like gold to us. And it sounds like they are to you too. Lori, I want to thank you for spending time with us this week. And I look forward to reading all of your stories, especially Christmas at the Amish Bake Shop. And that wraps up this episode. I encourage you to visit my website at tracyfredikowski.com to see a complete list of some of your favorite Amish fiction authors and all the great books they add to the Amish landscape. 